0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
1: Good morning, I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, April 7th, the road to reopening California. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County moves into the orange tier today. This means businesses like gyms, movie theaters, and zoos can open at higher capacities. Here's County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten.
2: Our numbers are looking good. So I think it is the appropriate time, but we just
1: cannot uh, let up and throw everything to the wind. She says the county is lifting the 10 p.m. curfew for restaurants and bars, and they don't foresee any new restrictions in the near future. La Mesa City Councilwoman Dr. Aquila Weber, the daughter of now Secretary of State Shirley Weber, is coming out ahead in the early results of the 79th Assembly District special election. Weber's mother held the district seat, but resigned in January to succeed Alex Padilla as California's Secretary of State. Dr. Weber holds 52% of the vote for now. If that number drops below 50% as counting continues, she'll face Republican Marco Contreras in a runoff on June 8th. City officials in Long Beach voted on Tuesday to join San Diego in temporarily housing unaccompanied migrant children at their own convention center. The city council unanimously approved a plan to work with the federal government to establish a shelter for as many as 1,000 children. The contract will start in a few days and will last until August 2nd. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Governor Gavin Newsom says he plans to fully reopen California's economy in June if current coronavirus trends
3: continue. Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon reports. California has administered more than 20 million COVID-19 vaccines and supply is still ramping up. Newsom says as long as that continues and if hospitalizations remain low, the state's color tier system for business restrictions can end.
4: We'll be moving past the dimmer switch. We'll be getting rid of the blueprint as you know it today. That's on June 15th if we continue the good work.
3: Masks and other health measures will still be required in public. Last week, the state indicated that some businesses could begin requiring proof of vaccination or a recent negative test to get in. Dr. Bob Walker chairs the Department of Medicine at UC San Francisco. He says, even with COVID variants, this is good news.
5: Most of the signals are positive, and I think there's a very good chance we'll be in a uh, we'll be in an excellent place, and it will be appropriate to return not quite to normal, but to normal-ish.
3: His only advice for people looking to return to their favorite activities this summer:
5: uh, get vaccinated. Number two would be get vaccinated, and number three would be get vaccinated.
3: And every Californian over the age of 16 becomes eligible April 15th. And that was Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon.
1: A 2020 tax measure to fund an expansion of the San Diego Convention Center has been in limbo for more than a year. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says the city council voted 6-3 to on Tuesday to rescue it.
6: Could the decade-plus quest to expand the convention center soon be over? In March 2020, the citizens' initiative Measure C won overwhelming support from San Diego voters, but it fell just shy of the two-thirds majority that special taxes have historically needed in California. The measure increases the city's hotel room tax to fund an expanded convention center, road repair, and services and housing for the homeless. City council members on Tuesday voted to declare the measure approved, Based on recent court decisions, finding special taxes only need a simple majority if they're proposed via a citizens' initiative. Measure C supporters say it will speed up the city's economic recovery.
4: And this is a great way for a lot of us employees to be able to pick up extra hours I'm pretty sure that I speak for a lot of my co-workers and myself when I say that we're very eager and very excited to get back to work.
6: Opponents of Tuesday's action point out the city's own ballot materials told voters Measure C needed a two-thirds majority to pass.
0: If you vote to change the threshold, one year after voters have made their decision, no matter how close it may have been, you're betraying the democratic principles you swore to uphold you'll be proven that you do not listen, you do not respect, and you do not care about the voice of the voters.
6: San Diego will now ask a judge to validate its decision. If and when that happens, the city can start collecting the extra taxes from San Diego hotels.
1: And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. San Diego Unified School District expects about half of its students will return to in-person learning next week. But those numbers could change as more parents feel comfortable sending their kids back to school. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has more.
6: Getting an accurate number of returning students will be important for determining how many days a week students can be on campus. If a high number of students want to come back, physical distancing rules require they be split into two smaller groups, with each group on campus twice a week. But if fewer students return, they can be in the classroom for up to four days a week. Richard Barrera is the president of the San Diego Unified School Board. Right now, uh, it looks like about three quarters of our schools will be offering four days. And the remainder of our schools will either be at two days or they're a combination of there may be some grade levels at the school that are at four days and other grade levels are at two days. Brewer said district officials will try their best to be flexible if more students decide to come back in the coming weeks or months. But if on April 12th, the particular school allows four days of instruction per week, the district does not plan to reduce the number of in-person days at that school to accommodate more students.
1: And that was KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. South Bay officials say they're running out of patience over the continued cross-border sewage flow coming from the Tijuana River. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has more.
2: The pollution warning signs have been up most of the year in Imperial Beach. Last week, the pollution flowed north to Coronado, forcing beach closures there. Imperial Beach Mayor Serge Dedina is fed up. Mexico is still using the Tijuana River as an open sewer, and the residents of San Diego IB and Coronado are suffering as a result. The Surfrider Foundation's Gabriela Torres is disappointed with the slow pace of change. She says legal action is waiting if there's no concrete progress by mid-summer.
3: Our lawsuit is on a 12-month stay, which started last July. Uh, So in July, the lawsuit will be opening up again.
2: Surfrider, the state, the port, and several municipalities put their lawsuits on hold because it looked like there was movement last year in the effort to stop the cross-border flows.
1: And that was KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Coming up, following last summer's racial justice protests, San Diegans approved the creation of a new commission on police practices. Now the commission is recommending changes on how the San Diego Police Department handles protests. We'll have more on that next, along with the story of what was behind a deadly crash in the Imperial Valley back in March. All of that just after the break. Last November, in response to the racial justice protests, San Diegans voted to create a commission on police practices. Now that commission is recommending changes to how the San Diego Police Department handles protests. They want the STPD to clarify when a protest can be declared an unlawful assembly, and they want changes to how body camera footage from protests is used. Commission Chair Brandon Hilpert spoke with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen on Midday Edition about how these recommendations came to be and how SDPD is responding to them.
6: How did the commission come up with these changes to SDPD's protest policy?
5: Sure, well, actually, let me take a step back is uh, after the George Floyd incidents uh, last year, we actually took a look to see what San Diego Police Department had. uh, And we realized that they actually didn't have a standalone protest policy. They were using existing policies uh, for use of force and when you can use um, chemical agents, things like that. Um, which we, to be honest, I was surprised about because uh, I never thought to look. And once we realized it wasn't there, uh, we felt it was appropriate for San Diego to to make that change. So at the time the CRB uh, held some community meetings uh, with a policy committee, and we looked at some policies around the country. Specifically, we found Seattle, uh, Oakland, Fresno, and Washington DC uh, to be some of the best that we found across the country that we thought could be leveraged here in San Diego. So the CRB at the time forwarded those to the police department, uh, and then they looked at those and they decided uh, that they would go ahead and start to create a standalone policy specifically for protest related activities. So based upon that, uh, you know, once they wrote their policy, they shared that with us. We had our, our first policy committee meeting where we reviewed it, had some initial conversations. And then we also held a community roundtable to try to get more community feedback of what they like, what they don't like, uh, what they would like to see, And then we brought it to the full committee, uh, sorry, the commission meeting to have the commission vote on. And then we wrote our memo to the police department last week.
6: Tell me more about the outreach process. I know in the past there's been some discontent over how much the community is involved with the police's policies and how they're changed. What kind of outreach did you do to come up with these recommendations?
5: Sure. So as you know, um, the commission is kind of in a, a state of flux right now as we've moved, moved from a review board to a commission model. So we're not completely a commission yet. But as part of that process, we want to make sure that the community has the opportunity to to voice their opinions and what they like and what they don't like. Um, that's not to say that we'll be able to implement everything that the community always requests. But uh, we wanted to try to be as open and transparent as to what we're doing. So. Even before we got to the protest policy, uh, we started doing community outreach uh, events. Um, Our outreach committee chair held four community roundtables. Uh, Some of the feedback we got from that kind of leveraged into the the policy uh, recommendations we had for protest related issues but specifically for the protest policy uh, again we have an open meeting uh, for the policy committee Uh, we then make those recommendations to the full commission and then the commission meeting is an open meeting of course Uh, but for this one we actually held an additional community roundtable before our open meeting so we could try to get that feedback incorporate that into our recommendations and then present that to the full commission to have them vote uh, on our, our feedback
6: did you or anyone else on the commission observe any of the contentious protests firsthand? And and how did that experience form the basis for these recommendations?
5: Yeah, so I personally did not. Um, I know some of our, our commission members did. Um, you know, as a commission, we try to be independent. Uh, we don't want to really be on the side of the police department or necessarily on the side of the community. We try to be an independent uh, review, uh, soon to be, you know, investigatory model, but um, but I mean, I think one of the things that we do tend to see is when we do review our community complaints, um, sometimes those are protests related uh, and, you know, sometimes just standard, you know, events that happen. Um, so oftentimes our recommendations are based on the complaints that we see. And then once we're analyzing that complaint and we look at the policy and the procedure, we realize that maybe the policy and procedure doesn't really respond the way we think it should. Uh, so that's usually how most of our, our recommendations uh, come about is, you know, either we see something that's either on the news or, you know, like to your point, if people have been actually out at a protest and they saw something that was, you know, maybe could have been handled better um, or complaints that just come in. So uh, again, I, I specifically didn't go to any of the protests, but um, we, we did see a lot of the community feedback. And then oftentimes the community will reach out to us and let us know uh, if they saw something they felt was maybe could have been handled better. Um, they'll share their feedback with us and we'll usually do a little bit of research to figure out if things could have been done differently.
6: What has been the response that you've gotten from San Diego police so far?
5: Uh, For the process policy, we haven't heard back yet. Um, I know the the, recommendations just went out last week. It usually will take them a little while to to review, kind of digest what we're asking for. Um, And then they'll usually do a formal written response. Um, As one thing that we've shared with everyone, our our recommendations are public. We put them up on our website and the response we receive back from the police department will be uh, put up on the website as well. So um, I, I hope to hear back from them soon. Um, I haven't heard back yet, but I'm sure they're reviewing our recommendations, and will have some some feedback for us.
6: In your first recommendation, you say that the current protest policy reads more as strictly crowd control rather than the facilitation of First Amendment protected activities. Can you tell me more about that?
5: Sure. One of the things, um, you know, obviously when we looked at policies from around the country, Washington D.C. you know clearly has a very very detailed policy. It's you know over almost 100 pages. Um, I don't think San Diego needed to go quite to that level, but I think it's important that um, people who do want to use their First Amendment rights to protest, that they know what they can and can't do. Um, and this policy, I think, really talks more about if the police department has decided that something is, is now an unlawful assembly, how the police department responds. And I think that's important. But I think what's also important is it needs to be clear what the community can do during a protest activity. And uh, the department, I think in the past has done a pretty good job of trying to facilitate uh, peaceful activities. It's just we want more clarity on when the department has decided something is not a peaceful assembly, um, how they respond, what it takes to get to that level, and then you know how the community uh, can respond. One of the things that you know we were a little bit concerned about is, you know, I think this is a good first step for some of the, the policy that they've created. There's a little too much ambiguity for us. Um, I think there's certain areas where it basically says, You know, a dispersal order will be given, but it doesn't really currently provide a lot of feedback on that, of of how many, how long, how many minutes do people have to depart a scene before, uh, you know, officers might go in. We want to see that clarity because I think that's important for the community to know, you know, what the expectations of them are uh, before something, you know, escalates and gets out of control.
6: San Diego police officials have often cited unruly behavior of protesters as the main reason that things escalate into violence, maybe throwing rocks or bottles. Do you think that this is a fair assessment?
5: You know, it's it's always I think it's a it's a difficult situation. Obviously, I think the citizens need to be protected. Officers need to be protected. Um, I think it's you have to look at the total situation to determine if the response from the police department is appropriate um, you know, making, you know, a a story up here, but if if someone crumbles a paper and throws that up as not at an officer, does that justify a response of someone, you know, officer using a chemical agent in in retaliation? Well, we would probably argue no. Um, you know, if protesters are throwing rocks or or things like that, you know, does that, you know, justify a response from the uh, the department within their, their use of force? Yeah, that's, that's possibly something that would be appropriate, but we want to see clarity on all that. And then we think that it should be a a open and transparent piece. So the department is, is letting the community know exactly what will happen and when and why.
1: That was Brandon Hilpert, the chair of San Diego's new commission on police practices, speaking with KPBS's Metro reporter Andrew Bowen on Midday Edition. In the early morning of March 2nd, an SUV packed with 25 people was hit by a big rig when the driver of the SUV ran a stop sign. The crash in Imperial Valley is one of the deadliest border-related crashes in recent decades. Those in the SUV had paid a smuggler to help them cross into the United States. The suspected smuggler was charged with organizing a human smuggling attempt that caused serious injury. But this tragedy highlights a humanitarian crisis at the southern border. Miriam Jordan is a New York Times reporter based in L.A. She reports on the impact of immigration on society, culture, and the economy of the United States. She spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview. In your piece,
2: you say the 13 people who died in the crash are a portrait of the migration explosion the U.S. government is struggling to address. How do the backstories of those who died and survived this crash give us a look into why we're seeing this increase?
4: Well, I think that the main driving factor of this migration currently is the economic devastation wrought by the pandemic on countries in the developing world. And in particular, the piece sheds light on the fact that we have growing numbers of single Mexican adults, both men and women, coming to the United States after reframing from doing so for many years because the Mexican economy has been badly battered by the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: And how does this surge in migration compare to previous surges we've seen?
4: It's a surge that we have not seen in about 15 years, the likes of. It's a surge that's more diverse than some of the surges in, you know, the past year, say in the early 2000s, but it's composed of women and children, single adults, and unaccompanied minors. And if there was one thing that they all have in common is that they are seeking a better life in the United States.
2: And How did you go about finding the backstories of those in the SUV for this piece you wrote?
4: So um, the story is based on interviews with, you know, survivors and family members who I was able to track down with the assistance of uh, Mexican consular officials, as well as uh, officials from the Guatemalan consulate in Los Angeles. I interviewed agents with the California Highway Patrol, the U.S. Border Patrol, and Homeland Security Investigations, and I, you know, reviewed police reports and a federal complaint that was recently filed against the man accused of organizing this trip, i.e. the um, Coyote.
2: Hmm. Let's talk about some of those people who were being smuggled into the U.S. when the SUV crashed. One of the survivors, Zeferina Mendoza, who was badly injured in the crash, why did she say she decided to make the often dangerous trek to the U.S.?
4: Well, you know, Zefirina lives in a very poor region of, of Mexico called Guerrero. A single mom, Um, trying to eke out an existence, um, you know, doing um, odd jobs. But even somebody like her in the informal economy wasn't making ends meet. So she decided to try to make her way to the strawberry fields of California, where she had family already working. As you said, Mendoza was making very little money. How did she and how do
2: others pay smugglers the high cost of getting them into the U.S.?
4: Um, What I learned from Zephyrina is that some of these coyotes even offer installment plans for paying the debt that these people incur. I mean, obviously, she did not have $9,000 on her. So what she agreed was that once she began working, she would pay, you know, by the month whatever she could toward what she owed. Now, it's quite possible that later she would get threatened or family members in the United States could receive threats from the coyotes saying, you know, we want you to pay up or else. But that was the arrangement that she had struck. Mm. And another one of the people you profile
2: is Yesenia Melendrez, who died in the crash. Tell me a bit about her and why
4: she decided to make the journey. Right, so she's an example of, a Central American fleeing gang violence that has really engulfed much of uh, Central America in the last, you know, decade or so. Uh, She was receiving threats on her phone, according to her uncle, who lives in California, felt, you know, that the threats were menacing and um, life-threatening enough that she should leave immediately. And so she and her mother embarked on this journey. And
2: the driver of the SUV also died in the crash. His backstory lines up with
4: why it's believed he was driving. Tell me about that. Right. So his wife, who I interviewed in Mexicali, the city where the SUV left from, told me that he had less work as a result of the pandemic. He worked in a bakery and maquiladora, one of those um, factories along the border that churns out electronics and other products for the American market. In any event, Jairo had less work as a result of the pandemic, was desperate to make money. Um, he had had this idea to start driving um, for Uber. However, Uber requires that cars be of a certain standard. If he went to the United States, he felt that he would quickly earn the money that he needed to buy a car and, you know, start driving in his home country. Thirteen people died in the crash. Twelve survived. Will the survivors stay in the United States? There is a strong chance that they will be able to stay in the United States because they could avail of visas that are made available to witnesses of crimes. They obviously have inside information about how this human smuggling operation was organized, how much, you know, the they had to pay, how many people might have been involved in ferrying them across, stashing them in a remote location or a staging area before they went across, et cetera. So it's possible that cooperating would enable them to remain in the United States long term, but
1: that's you know not
4: 100% certain.
1: That was Miriam Jordan, a reporter for The New York Times. She was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman.